You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Kootenai Community Church uh, Adult Sunday School. As you know, uh, Cornell and I have been alternating uh, on various Sundays. Cornell teaching through the book of Corinthians, and I teaching through the book of Philippians. So we have uh, worked our way through, and this morning we're still in chapter 1. Hopefully, I will try to finish the remaining verses, uh, verses 27 through 30. And we'll try to close this first chapter, if we can work through that. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would guide us and illuminate us. Father, we just praise You and thank You for the unity in the Spirit That is your spirit and the unity we have as your people here at the local fellowship at Kootenai Community Church. And Lord, we know that your people throughout the world are honoring you and celebrating you this day. And we just praise you and thank you for the fellowship of the brethren. And as we look at your word this morning, Father, we are utterly and completely dependent upon your Holy Spirit to give us not only understanding, but the grace to appropriate your word in our lives so that it may not just be an academic study, but that it's a transforming and a renewing of our minds through the power of your word and in your spirit. We give you thanks, Lord, for your love for each of us that you gave your Son for all those that place their faith in you for forgiveness of sin and salvation and to be able to enjoy the fellowship that we have in Christ. We just ask now that you'd guide us and that you'd be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Oftentimes, uh, when we look at the Apostle Paul's epistles, we can see uh, his interest, his focus point, and his desire to honor God in all that he does. And he's already stated, even earlier in this epistle, that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that summarizes the essence of Paul's life. And yet, we recognize at this point, we understood that Paul was in prison in Rome and that he was awaiting the outcome of the sentence that he was facing. He had complete confidence, however, not on anything based on what God had given him as a special revelation, but he had personal confidence that he was going to be released at some point 
and would be able to actually be reunited with these Philippian believers. He had a great love for this fellowship, and he understood this little fellowship in this providence of Rome was a miniature Rome in every sense of the word. And we looked at that in the introduction. They they mimicked Rome in their dress, in their speech, in their political practices, and in every way. And he wanted these Christians living amongst these pagans and idolaters to be able to be set apart for the gospel. He was thankful because he was had received reports that even though he was not there to assist and to minister his word, the Lord's word to them and disciple them, the gospel was going forth. People were being saved in the city of Philippi. Paul was not only joyful over that, but he was pleased to see that God's work in them was fruitful. Though the church was not perfect in any sense of the word, he's going to, later on in this epistle, address some issues, some that are having conflict, and then later on he addresses the false teachers that had crept in there, the Judaizers. And he's going to rebuke and point out their false teaching. So Paul's pursuit here was, first of all, to express his joy for the saints and also to give them some understanding that he was fine. They were concerned. That's why they had dispatched uh, Epaphroditus to give a report and to bring him a gift or several gifts and also to bring a report back to the body in Philippi. They were concerned about Paul's well-being. He wanted them to be assured that he was fine. Though whatever he suffered, he didn't explain or give, give any account for that. He didn't focus on himself. His focus was, first of all, on Christ and then God's people. He was concerned about them. And so he wanted now to express that. He had offered thanks, given thanks for them. Then he offered a prayer up for them. Now the tone takes a little bit of a turn. Now he is going to focus on their walk, their daily conduct, their lives. And we opened a little bit of that last week in verse 27. But his concern was not just that they were believers and they were proclaiming the gospel, but he wanted their conduct. And earlier on in the 1700s, if you look at the King James Version, the word instead of conduct was conversation. And yet, in that period, that meant their very life daily conduct. And so we have now in the New American Standard the word conduct that is used in lieu of conversation. So Paul says in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you 
or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So uh, in this opening portion, we recognize that now Paul has made this transition. He wants to know if they're representing the gospel in their daily lives in a way that they should. How often do we see people that profess to be Christians and actually making a mockery of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Too many times people claim to be Christians and yet have one foot in the world and one foot in the, quote, church. Paul here wanted them to be set apart in their lives. Now, these Christians that were in Philippi faced many obstacles. We looked at in the introduction, it was replete with idol, idolatry worship. There were various statues and forms of idolatry throughout the city of Philippi, much in the same way as it was in Rome. So Paul understood that. He understood what they faced. He, of course, had already been to Philippi and brought forth the gospel and planted the church there. And he wanted to, or he wanted to understand and know that they were living now set apart for God, for Christ, and living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we looked a little bit at that last week. What is it, again, to be worthy of living in a manner worthy of the gospel? That is that we are exhibiting Christ-like character in a world that is lost. Rather than being people who are concerned about the political stature or the political situation that they may live in and whatever society they're in, or what kind of posture they t- take against moral issues, Paul did not address any of those things. He could have. There was plenty to address. He never dealt with those issues in any of his epistles. He wasn't concerned about the political state of a city. He was always concerned about the growth and the edification of the believers. He wanted to equip these saints for the work of the ministry. He wanted them to represent Christ in a godly way. In a way that they were set apart from the world. Yet, they're not pulled away from the world. They were still had to work. They lived. And they partook of all the entities that the city or country that they lived in. They were in the midst of a fallen world. And yet Paul wanted them to be a light to those who walked in darkness. And he also wanted them to demonstrate unity and love for one another. Now, he wasn't preaching universalism. 
He wanted them to be centered on Christ and living out the gospel in a way that they understood the gospel. How can we give the gospel and not understand what that gospel should do? How can we present the gospel and not somehow be living the representation of that which we speak? So this was Paul's concern. He would uh, hope to be there with them whenever he could. But now he wants this inward focus. It's much like he instructed them in the third chapter of Colossians, which Cornell did a exposition of earlier. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. In other words, our lives should reflect who we are. Not just what we say, but the very evidence by our lives. Not just here on Sunday morning. It's easy for us to come and shake hands, smile, and give the appearance of being Christians. And yet, it's when we're challenged daily, and everyone is challenged in a different way, to live that life in whatever God brings in our lives, recognizing that He sovereignly filters everything. There's nothing that you and I experience, and we've looked at this numerous times throughout this epistle, that God hasn't ordained. So here Paul recognizes where they are, what kind of a city that they're living in, and what they're faced with each day. And he's confident that God is working in them, both to will and do of his good pleasure. He urges them to, first of all, stand firm in one spirit. He had already reiterated that. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. How easy it is when the apostle is there with them and he's able to observe them on a daily basis. They want to be in their best behavior, just much like perhaps when we were in school. While we're in the classroom, under the teacher or professor, whatever level that we're in, we want to be in our best behavior. And yet oftentimes, when that teacher or professor leaves the room, the conduct changes. In the same way, in Christianity, we can be gathered together and present ourselves as living a holy life and set apart, and yet daily in our personal lives. Are we set apart in our thinking, in our speech, in our behavior? That's what Paul wanted to focus on. He wanted them to be living that light of the gospel. This conduct that he spoke of had to be worthy of the gospel. When we think about that, how often we see the gospel reduced. Uh, today, in many 
places that call themselves Christians, they want to eliminate certain doctrines so that it's more palatable for the unbelievers. They want to leave out the word sin in their teaching or the essence of hell or the essence of God's sovereignty over punishment of the eternal that have rejected Christ. The eternal punishment from which they will suffer if they deny Christ and suffer in eternity. Many times today in the contemporary church, there is a lack of focus on these things just to make it marketable. Paul here in this text wanted them to demonstrate part of this through the harmony and unity. Now, there was some disunity in this local fellowship, which Paul addresses later on in this epistle. And he wanted them to know he understood and knew that. He was going to bring reproof and correction. And he wanted them to carry that out. But he also wanted them to display that element of unity and harmony to the people that they lived amongst. Remember Christ saying, they will know you by your love for one another. By this they will know you my people. I'm misquoting that. But Christ wanted them to understand that by our love for one another, this would demonstrate these are the elements of Christian love for one another. Here, in this setting in Philippi, they could have been in disharmony and causing all kinds of disarray and shaming the name of Christ. Paul had not seen that to a large degree, but he wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. So he wanted them to live in harmony in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wanted them to be an empirical uh, example, a practical example of what it is to be a Christian. This transformed life, much like he instructed the church of Rome, in Rome, when he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He gave that to the believers in Rome in, of course, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The apostle gave the a similar admonition in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you were called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel is that believers are striving together for a life of obedience and fruitfulness. We know that that obedience comes by submission to God's word And that, of course, is by His grace. 
when we are humbling ourselves before God, which he is going to talk about in chapter 2, having this humility that allows us to be submissive to God's word, that brings forth the aspect of obedience when we're submitted to God's word. He also wanted them to understand that this gospel which they were bringing forth was a witness of Christian living in a world that hated them. You know, in Romans 8, Paul talked about the world is at enmity with God. So we understand that those that are in the world hate Christians, they hate God, and it reflects in their speech and their behavior. So how do we respond to that? Do we react to it? Or do we respond to that? It's so easy to somehow take an offense when somebody is angry at us or somebody slanders us or somebody offends us in some way without recognizing that the unregenerate individual is incapable of doing anything but sinning. They can't, they could put on a facade or they could put on some moral, uh, they can do some moral deeds that are, quote, from the world standard, good. It could help people, help the poor. And yet, it's all as filthy rags to God. So we have to understand, the lost hates us because they hate God. And anything that is a representative, anyone that is a representative of God will be hated by the world. So Paul wanted them to understand that. And from that, recognize that should be a motivation for us. The more somebody displays that attitude, the more it shows our salvation and their state of being lost. In, excuse me, the apostle urged the saints in Philippi to stand firm. This translates into the single Greek verb, stako, which has the meaning of holding one's ground regardless of the danger or opposition in verse 28. In no way being alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So as we think about that of being steadfast and firm against any obstacles that may come against us spiritually, that is a sign for the lost that they are truly lost. Throughout church histories, uh, many times people look back at the Puritan area and they recognize how uh, some of these Puritans were just living examples daily in their lives, in their work, and their ethics, their families, and their love of God reflected in every aspect of their lives. And yet, uh, even though we sometimes read 
these Puritan writings and love what they represented, how many of us would be able to sit through the messages that they sat through? Three hours, perhaps, or more of a message being preached, perhaps in a hot church with no air circulation. There was all kinds of conditions that were endured because of the love for the Word of God. And yet, today, people are not even tolerant enough to make it through a 35-minute sermon in some cases. Beginning in this text, as we look today in verse 28, we want to know and examine something. In no way alarmed by your opponents or your adversaries, as some translation gives. We want to ask a question. Who are these adversaries? Was it primarily the Jews or was it the Gentiles? We have to remember that uh, in our introduction, we examined the aspect of the city of Philippi and there weren't enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. That required at least 10 Jews in order to have a synagogue. So they didn't have a large populace of Jews in the city of Philippi. And the Gentiles, they looked at the Christians as some form of atheists because they had what is known as emperor worship during that period. They actually worshipped the emperor of Rome. And because these Christians would not bow down to the emperor nor worship him, they thought that they were idolaters. They had this other god that they worshipped. They had no understanding that they were worshiping the true God, the creator God, the God of salvation. So they had this enmity. That was the main adversary to the Christians in Philippi. This was the Gentiles. Yes, the Jews hated them, but it didn't represent the populace of the Gentiles who hated these Christians. They were different. They didn't want to do the same things. They didn't partake of the same practices and idolatry that these Philippians did. <clears throat> so the Gentiles were their adversaries, but as well, the Jews were their adversaries. And in chapter 3, of course, Paul stands against these Judaizers and also uh, recognized that the these Judaizers troubled other cities as well in Galatia and Colossia. They were trying to get these new converts to follow Judaism. And yet Paul addresses that even in this epistle. The failure of these adversaries was to intimidate these believers and their fearlessness was proof of God working out his plan in them. Remember, Paul was an example to them. Here he was in prison in Rome, wrongfully imprisoned, and yet he was rejoicing. He didn't complain. He was bringing them 
encouragement. He was joyful over what he had seen in the body of Christ in Philippi. So he was an example of them. So for them to suffer persecution, they could do so without fear because they were following the example that Paul gave. Now, did they have anything to fear? Absolutely. They could have been tortured. They could have been imprisoned. Or they could have been executed. And yet, they were forming the attitude as Paul. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. So they were coming to that place of maturity where their adversaries weren't putting the fear in them that they had hoped to. They hoped that they could suppress this church, somehow get rid of them, because it was growing. Others were coming to Christ in this city. So the failure to see that brought forth the understanding of these men being saved. As we look at the some of the false teachers today, which Justin has a ministry of exposing, we have to understand that that started not just in a contemporary society, that goes all the way back to first century Christianity. There was always attacks and always heretical or false teaching that was attacking the body of Christ. And then we had the adversaries of the Gentile unbelievers attacking the church. So there's always been an attack of God's people throughout church history. And yet Paul is encouraged. He encouraged these Philippian believers that they should be in no way alarmed by their opponents. And yet, as we consider the potential of their treatment, they had reason to be alarmed. The attacking that was being done by these Gentiles was clear. But both was a proof and a sign from God that shows the enemies of God are under judgment. Paul describes this judgment as destruction or eternal punishment, not annihilation. The teaching of annihilation rather than eternal punishment is a false teaching. So here Paul is trying to show that they weren't afraid of these adversaries. But for a moment, I would like to go over to Second Thessalonians so we get a better understanding of this punishment that we are considering here. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'll just read it to you, verses 6 through 9. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give you relief you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal 
destruction. Now, that's not annihilation. Away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and for the work of faith with the power so that God, our Lord Jesus, will be glorified in you and in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That was again in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. So there, Paul reiterates how we are going to spend eternity. They were facing eternal destruction. They will be fitted for eternal life, but that for eternal torment. So both are signs from God. As the church struggles... church struggles to fulfill its mission, we shouldn't be intimidated by unbelievers who attack us. We recognize that this happens throughout all of Christian history. We must recognize that throughout church history, the church and its people have been attacked. recognize that God doesn't want us to fear the adversary. So what do we do when we're attacked? We talked about responding or reacting. Paul here is wanting them not to fear that adversary. When you react out of fear, you can react out of anger. If somebody attacks you, you get into defensive mode, and then you go on the Offensive mode. So we want to understand Paul is wanting them to be representatives of the gospel. Not to fear what the adversary might try to do. Even to the point of death. Now throughout church history, there's always been those that have suffered martyrdom. And ultimately paid the price of their faith through ultimate giving of their lives. Thus far in this country in the, or the Western Hemisphere of the world, we don't really have that threat of physical death yet. But that may come. But Paul wants them to be prepared and not to have fear of this adversary who is attacking God's people. Back in verse 27, Paul told us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we considered the elements of the gospel in that period. Paul instructed them not to be afraid of those that would come against the gospel, but that it was a sign of their salvation. As he continues in this passage, he says to walk in a manner worthy and suffer because of our faith in him on behalf of Christ 
Some translations say, for Christ's sake, which is in the New American Standard. God gives His children both the faith and the suffering that has been granted. To give or render is to grant graciously. That is, God is giving us the privilege of suffering for His sake. Indeed, Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's a matter, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how we will suffer. Because Christ has ordained that. It is the cause of the growth as Jim took us through the book of Acts. It wasn't too long ago, a couple of years back. We recognize what the church went through throughout the history from the onset. It was persecuted. And gradually that persecution grew stronger and wider as the church grew. And yet it produced and allowed church growth. That is, in a true sense. God was bringing forth His gospel in the midst of this persecution. So here Paul is trying to encourage them. Because it's separating us. For us to suffer is a recognition that we are saved. But to them, <clears throat> to suffer for Christ's sake is not only a command, but it's a privilege. Later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, we'll look at that in depth when we get that far. But in verse 30, he says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. In this last verse, Paul says that they are experiencing the same suffering that they saw and heard that Paul had suffered. It was just a matter of time that they would all experience that. They're on common ground now with Paul. He suffered and continued to suffer, and now they were suffering. So they were joined in in the ability and the privilege of this suffering. <clears throat> they were, in many ways, aggravated by idol in emperor worshipers, worshipers, <clears throat> those legalistic Judaizers, and there was some quarreling amongst the church members, which was a result of Satan's attack on the church. The conflict was the same, and so was the underlying cause. But it's because, on behalf of Christ, it is in the interest of the kingdom of God that suffering take place. In the suffering, which this conflict begins, it's God's gracious gift, is the victory for both Paul and for them. We need to remember that suffering on behalf of Christ is a privilege, and we need to walk in a manner worthy of that privilege. Now, looking at some of the elements of suffering, 
I'd like to just take a short period of time. We don't have much time left. But the psalmist in Psalm 66, verses 8 and 9 says, Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard. He has persevered our lives and kept our feet from slipping. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this in the second chapter, verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom through <clears throat> he exist, everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Suffering teaches us the greatest good of the Christian life is not absence of pain, but Christ's likeness. Later on in Hebrews, the author said, for a time, suffering, <clears throat> this, he's talking about discipline in chapter 12, and says, for a period of time, <clears throat> the discipline seems sorrowful, but it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. <clears throat> so God works through this method of suffering. It is a gift to us. Everyone here has gone through and some still go through suffering daily. Some physically, some in other ways. We have to understand that this is allowed and even provided by God. <clears throat> Romans 8, 28 and 29, of course, we know that all things work together for good for those who love them, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that we might be the firstborn among man and many brethren. Suffering can be a form of chastisement as well. In Psalm 107.17, some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffer affliction because of their iniquities. Obedience and self-control is learned through suffering. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And here in Romans 5, when Paul addressed that epistle to the Romans, he said, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And again, we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now in James, which... Justin is going through as he preaches in James 1, verses 2 through 8. I'm not going to do an exposition of, but James says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously and who without finding fault and will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So as we think of this sovereign suffering that God allows in our lives, he's producing Christ-like character in us. It doesn't come in the absence of suffering. So God's sovereign means of transforming us and bringing proven character and exhibiting the gospel in and through us is brought through that of suffering. So let's, as we think about these things, let's look at it in the positive sense of what God himself has set an example through him as the preeminent example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again through Paul, who lived out this life of the gospel, suffering and rejoicing in that suffering. So if Paul gives us this example, let's try to recognize that calling that God has allowed us to partake in and to rejoice as God gives us grace. And that isn't to be giddy or to think, oh yeah, I'm suffering for the Lord. No, we don't focus on ourselves. It's the essence of truly understanding as God, if God has allowed this or brought this for the purpose of transforming us and partaking of the element of that transforming work being that of Christ, we want to receive that with the element of thanksgiving. So, Father, we just thank you this morning for your word. And, Lord, we do pray that we'd be able to understand your purposes in our life as you work each individual aspect out for your glory and that we might be able to honor you with our lives as we submit to your word and that you bring forth uh, in our lives that sovereign work of conforming us to the image of your Son. We thank you now for this time of worship as we continue in song and praise and the proclamation of your word. May you be lifted up and glorified and may we be edified and practice that which you have proclaimed to us by your grace. And we pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.